Father, this morning, as we come into your presence, it's so good to be in your presence. There's no doubt in my mind this morning as I get ready to, to share about the things that you've laid on my heart, that God, you are right here. As your presence is here in this place, and don't let anything that I say or anything that we think quench that moment or quench your presence because, God, we desperately need you. I pray that what we're about to talk about would, God, that it would encourage us to be more like Jesus. God, that it would shape us that even a little bit that it make us uncomfortable. And that we catch just a little bit more about the mission and the message that Jesus brought to us so long ago. We just give you glory and honor in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you guys this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Man, that was some amazing worship. God was honored through your singing and through that leading. It was good. That was good. Well, today we're going to start a brand new series. All right? This series is called Go, as you can see on the, on the screen. And today I'm going to share some parts from a sermon that, um, well, to be real honest about it, this sermon totally wrecked my life five years ago. Right? Yeah, that, that, that's it. And uh, my prayer today as I came into it is, is that this message would wreck your life in the same way that it wrecked mine. Uh, some of you have just turned over your shoulder and looked at the door. You're like, wait a second. The preacher just said that he's going to preach a message that he hopes wrecks our lives. Yeah, I, I do. Because I want you to hear what Jesus said to me and to my heart. And I hope he says it to you and to your heart that totally just messed everything up. It's probably good that this message, which was really planned several weeks ago, is being shared today because I needed to hear it this week. This message has so much meaning for me, and I think you know this, that not all weeks are created equal in the way that weeks go. Some weeks are just tough, right? Some weeks are just tougher than others. There are weeks where, well, a loved one passes away, right? That's a tough week. It's a tough week. There are weeks where your boss comes in and he demands from you that he needs something and he berates you for the next several hours about why it is that you couldn't get it done and then you're left questioning everything about yourself. Those are tough weeks. Tough weeks. There are weeks that some of you have gone through where find out that maybe your spouse is cheating on you or your spouse comes and drops the divorce papers on the table and says I'm done I'm out tough week not all weeks are created equal and this message for me this week Jesus dropped it right in the middle of a tough week a tough week and to be honest Without this message, I wouldn't be here today. 
Yeah, I think maybe we've got some of your attention now. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Now while you're powering up your app or while you're opening up your Bible, let me just catch you up a little bit on the story because we're really going to drop down at the end of the chapter, but we're smack dab in the middle of the book of Luke. And so let me just kind of catch you up a little bit for a second. Now Luke, Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been in Matthew, and Matthew was one of the guys that was walking around with Jesus. Luke was not one of those guys. So Luke's story was not from personal experience about watching and seeing everything that Jesus did. In fact, Luke's really is, Luke was a doctor, and he came at it from this kind of historian perspective, and he gathered all of these different eyewitness accounts and went and, and put it all together to, to put a complete story out there about who this guy Jesus was. In fact, Luke is actually um, part one of a two-part series where it's Luke and Acts. He wrote both of those two books. And it kind of has the everything from the start of Jesus all the way through to the church and the explosion of the church all the way to really the end of Luke has, um, it sets up everything that gets us all the way to today. The, that's the end of the book of Acts. And so we have this book and this work of, of Luke and it's very different from Matthew. Matthew, if you were here, we talked about that Matthew was a Jew writing to the Jews. Right? So he wanted all of the history and all of their background, and he has all of these things that have some significant meaning for the Jews that were there, that were his original audience, that for us, sometimes we have to, you know, brush a little bit off to go, oh, I understand a little bit better about what he means. But Luke is not that way. Luke was writing to the everyday person. Right? His goal was to include the everyday person. In fact, Luke gives us some details that we don't find anywhere else. For example, in the birth narrative, Luke gives us the story of the shepherds. Why? Because they're the everyday people. And he wanted us to know that Jesus was for us, the everyday person. And then in Acts, he highlights even more the women and those that would be considered the lesser, right? Not today, but then the lesser out of all of those that were in the world. And he would highlight them and showcase that, listen, Jesus came and this whole thing is for everyone. Now, Luke chapter 9, where we're going to be reading at today, may be one of the most important chapters in the book of Luke. All right? Now, I say that very carefully and cautiously, understanding a couple of things. Number one, that Luke chapter 2 has the birth narrative of Jesus. It's kind of hard to get something above Jesus being born. And also, at the end of Luke, we have his death and resurrection. All right? So, you've got those two, and then I think you have Luke chapter 9. Okay? Just so that we're all clear about what happened. So let me tell you a little bit about what's happened in Luke chapter 9. The whole chapter opens up and Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. They are in the area of Galilee and of Samaria and he sends them out to the surrounding cities. He sends 12 people out to go. They go out, they begin to share, they begin to heal people, they share about the gospel, they share the kingdom of God, the great news that's there, and they come back. And when they come back, they tell Jesus about everything, and Jesus takes them off to a quiet place. He, like, goes and has, like, church camp with them, right? They go to a town called Bethsaida, an area of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is great because Bethsaida means the house of the hunters, 
right? That's where really the house of the hunter, the house of the hunted. And it's a, a small fishing village. And so Jesus takes these guys and they go off to this retreat center and they're all there. And I kind of imagine that Jesus is like having like debrief with them about everything. And while they're there, the people figure out that Jesus is here. And they start coming in droves. And Jesus doesn't shoo them away. Jesus says, oh, you know what? We're kind of about them, so let's go outside, and we're going to begin to heal them. And they, and we're going to teach and everything, and the day begins to run long. The disciples go, um, Jesus, it's time to send the people away. He says, why? We don't have any food for them. He said, all we've got is a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus said, great, bring it to me. And with that, he fed 5,000 people. Huge, huge moment. But as if that wasn't crazy enough, afterwards, the 12 disciples went out to gather up all of what was remains, the scraps, and it filled 12 baskets full. I don't know how Jesus turned a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish into feeding 5,000 people, and then there's still enough for 12 baskets full. And even more, I don't know where the 12 baskets came from. I don't know. Doesn't tell me. Then, then we have this moment in chapter 9 where John and James and Peter witness something incredible. Jesus takes these three guys and they go up on top of a mountainside. And Jesus has, the only way the Bible knows how to describe it is it's called the transfiguration. And they see something that nobody else had ever seen. In fact, Peter is like, Jesus, it's so good that we were able to be here. Like, let's build like three altars to worship you and one to worship Moses and Elijah who were here in this moment and Jesus is like you're totally missing it dude he's like you don't understand what's going on so let's just not talk about this anymore but they saw something incredible about what things were going to be like later on oh yeah and in the middle of all of that there's this moment where Jesus says hey who do people say that I am and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that they've been waiting for, right? Huge chapter, just moment after moment of pivotal things. And with all of that, then comes verse 51. And verse 51 at the end of the chapter says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up. In other words, Jesus knew that he was about to die. He knew that he was about to be taken up onto a cross and be crucified. And it says that when those days drew near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, unlike you and me, Jesus knew when he was going to die. Right? Let that sink in for just a second. I mean, I know some people, we get cancer diagnoses and we get like this like window of time. Like it may be, you know, three months or it may be six years or whatever. And we have this sort of, hey, now's the... But Jesus knew. Jesus knew when it was. In fact, he knew because he had a mission and he knew that he had to accomplish a mission. And this mission had been on the forefront of everything that Jesus had been doing from the moment that he was born. In fact, Luke is the only one that records a moment in Jesus' life about when he's 12 and he goes to the temple. And his parents leave him at the temple on accident. Now, I think I love this story because it tells me that it's okay to leave your child somewhere. I mean, if Jesus' parents did it, right? I mean, they're, they're obviously a much better parent than I am. So, but Jesus, when, they, when his parents find him, 
right? He looks at them at age 12, right? And he says this to them. He says, why were you looking for me? In other words, why are you so panicked about everything? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Some translations say this. They say, didn't you know that I'd be about my father's business? In other words, Jesus at age 12 already knew his mission and his message. How many of you are still looking for either one of those two things in your life? Your mission or your message? Yeah, I think there's probably a bunch of us. There's a bunch of us that at age 12, we would like to have known what our mission and message in life was going to be so that we could have um, pursued that. So here it is in chapter 9, he's sent out at the very beginning, the 12, and then chapter 10 kind of closes this whole thing because he sends out the 70 or 72. But verse 51 kind of sets up this next section that we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 57. And it says this in verse 57, it says, as they were going along the road. I want to stop here for just a second. Because when you have a series that's called Go, right? When you have a series that's called Go, the assumption from people that go to church or have grown up in church is really that we're going to talk about the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And for those of you who may not know what it is, let me just read that to you. It says this. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. This was Jesus' last statements to his disciples. And it's been dubbed as the Great Commission. In other words, he invited them to be on the same mission that he had been on from the very beginning. Now recently, recently there's been some debate about the word go in that passage, right? Now, I don't know about you, but go seems like a pretty straightforward word to me. But there seems like there's um, some controversy there, so I thought I'd just share it with you. So you can hear some of those things. For years, for years this word go had this idea of going to the ends of the earth, right? This sort of missional idea that we might talk about it with. Some sort of, hey, I have to leave where I'm at and go somewhere else. In fact, in 1792, there was a guy, his name was William Carey, right? And William Carey, at the time, was a young man, about 28 years old. And William Carey, after reading this verse, decided that God wanted him to go as a missionary somewhere. That that's what it was being dictated that he should do. And he wrote out... And really, it was something that has really kind of flavored this verse for at least the last 300 years. And this idea of the go means to go somewhere else. Right? In fact, he said, listen, he said, if you are not the one that is going, then this verse commands that you should be supporting the go through your monetary giving. He's like, if you can't physically go somewhere to share the gospel, then you should be giving money towards it and supporting it that way. And so that began a whole, a whole revolution of individuals who left where they were at 
They left England. They went to India. They went to China. They went all kinds of places, and they were supported by people because they believed that this is what go meant. That sort of goes pretty good, right? Now, you might say, hey, 200 years plus, that seems like it might be a little bit played out, right? I mean, surely by this point, um, everybody, everywhere's been gone to, right? I mean, 200 years is a long time to be able to go everywhere, and so surely that we have narrowed the gap on the place that we're supposed to be going, the places that don't have access to the gospel that might be being talked about here. So I pulled up the Joshua Project, right? Joshua Project, uh, they track the different people groups that are across the world that have little or no access to the gospel, and here's what they said. Currently, there are about 3.19 billion people who represent a little over 7,000 different people groups that would be considered unreached. They've not heard the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus. Yikes. But really, let's be honest about this one for a second. This kind of go is pretty easy for us here in America because what we easily default to is to say, you know what, here's what I'll do. One week a year, I'll give up part of my vacation to go somewhere, right? And the rest of the time, I'll give some extra money to help towards that going. And in America, we go, hey, that's really great. And I'm doing a good job of living out what it is that Jesus said, um, go me. But here's the problem. That kind of going doesn't really change us. Right? That kind of going doesn't really change us. Recently, recently though, this word go has come to be understood a little bit differently. You see, many have moved from translating this sort of imperative to taking it to all of the different nations and the countries and all of these places to this sort of idea of, and you've probably heard it if you've been around church, if not, maybe this first time, but this kind of idea that says, while you are going. Not go as an imperative command about this is what you must do, but instead that as you are going. In other words, as you are going about your day, as you might otherwise be doing something, remember to include this thing that I've said is important. Now, as you go is pretty nice. It preaches pretty nicely, right? Because as you go means that we have this sort of responsibility locally, right? That as we're going about the, the actions of our, our day, that we should be looking for somebody to make a disciple of. Now, the problem is that few, if any of us, know how to make a disciple. If I asked you, right, if you knew how to make a disciple, most of you'd be like, I'm not even really sure where I start with this idea of making a disciple. And the problem is, is that most of us, the way that we think that we make a disciple is, is that we find somebody who's already going to church, right? We begin to talk to them about things that are in the Bible, and we begin to consider that making a disciple, somebody who is already a part of that. And really what it is is just a glorified Bible study, but we call that discipleship. 
And again, I think the problem with this is, is that there's not really any life change in this idea of as you're going. In fact, I would say that both of these involve zero change in most of our lives. Now, I'm going to geek out on you for just a moment. All right? I found a website that's called Greek Geek, and I thought it was awesome. Go is a participle of attendant circumstance. Told you I was going to geek out for just a second. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that go is supposed to take the full force of the main verb of the passage, which in this case, the main verb of this passage is disciple. Not make disciples, but just disciple. Disciple is a command of something that we're supposed to do. Not making something, just do it. And I, I'm really not sure that arguing about this idea about the full force of this really helps us any, but I did think this. That Jesus, through his own life, in the passage that we were just looking at, built an example for us that says, yes, both of these ideas. You say, wait, Michelle, what do, you, what do you mean? You see, in verse 51, Jesus set his face to go somewhere very specifically. Right? Did you hear it? His mission, he knew what it was, and he turned and said that I am going to Jerusalem. That's where I'm headed. That's where I'm going. That's where my mission, that's where my message has got to take me. That's it. So he turned and he headed that away. It was his goal. It was the place that he understood where he was supposed to be and where he was supposed to be engaged in and engaging in the question of discipling. Here's the first thing I want to say about go versus going. On their own, both of them are good, but Jesus did not call us to do one over the other. In fact, I would go as far as to say both are sins done on their own. Because they fall short of what God is calling us to. And it doesn't demand any real change from us. Look on with me. As Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the purpose of his mission and his message, I want you to see what happens. It says, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So as he's going, so he turned his head and said, I'm going this place. And as he is going, somebody comes up to him and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All right, this is the verse that wrecked my life. It wrecked my entire family's life, to be real honest about it. And if you've ever come to dessert with a pastor, this is a verse that I share in the context of that conversation. So Jesus is going, right? He, he's picked a place that he's supposed to be going to. He's been sent there, and he's going to it. And as he's going, God sends some people along the way to engage with him. And this very first guy that Luke lists, really, this guy is every pastor's dream, right? He comes up, and he says, hey, listen, 
I want to follow Jesus. And every pastor, when we hear that, we're like, woohoo, happy dance. We've got somebody who wants to follow Jesus. This is fantastic. And Jesus, Jesus answers this guy in a way that gave me nightmares for weeks. Because Jesus didn't do a happy dance. Jesus says, Jesus says, this cryptic line of foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head and rest. What kind of response is that to somebody who says, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you want to go? It doesn't seem like the response I would give, but it's certainly what Jesus said. And it took me a really long time to wrestle with this. I was like, Jesus, what in the world are you saying? I want you to hear it. Because essentially this is what Jesus is saying. He says, following me isn't comfortable. Let that sink in for a second. Following me isn't comfortable because I am going to change you. And that process of change is not going to be comfortable. And if you can't be uncomfortable for me, then I don't want you. I'm not going to choose you for my team. Pastor Carl, did you just say, yeah, I did. Maybe you're somebody that's sitting out there right now and you've ever doubted your salvation. You've looked back on your life and you said, you know what, I wonder if really I have this eternal security about where I'm at in my final destination. And if you look back on your life and there's no change that's going on and you haven't been willing to risk and be uncomfortable in whatever situation for Jesus, I... Listen, I think one of the biggest lies the enemy tells us is that you can do it. You can do it, right? Everything is okay. Because when we live in our comfortability, when we don't want to change, when we don't want anything to be different about stuff, when we think that we can control it all, Jesus says, that's not what I called you to not what I'm calling you to. That's a lie. Look, those are the same two lies that he used with Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? They're right next to the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. And the enemy says, you can do it. You can do it all by yourself. You can take the power and make yourself just like God. You can do it. And then if you read on, she looks at it and she says, hey, this looks fine. Looks like everything's going to be okay. Listen, the enemy has a desire, a desire to weaken us. And nothing weakens us faster than a lazy boy. Right? Creature comforts. 
the places where we kick back and relax. We're kings of our own palace. And Jesus says, listen, following him means that we have to be willing to sacrifice those comforts. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Why in the world would James say that? Count it pure joy. Well, number one, it means that when we face a trial, that we are being shaped to be more like Jesus. Number two, it means that there's a good possibility that we've upset an enemy enough that he wants to make our life difficult so that we'll go back to being comfortable because we want to be safe and comforted. We don't want to be changed and we don't want things to be difficult. And so he'll begin to throw the kitchen sink at us to get us to go back into our hole. And I think James is right. Either one of those two reasons is a pretty good reason to count it joy. Either I've ticked off the enemy or God's working on me. And maybe both. Well, some of you already know this. But that verse five years ago is the one that God spoke into my heart and my wife's heart. He said, Charles, Stephanie, you guys are awfully comfortable. In fact, my wife looked at me after we had talked about this verse together, and she said, you know what? We can live our lives as if God doesn't even exist. And we don't have to rely on him for anything with where we're at right now. They didn't mean that's how we were living. But it was true. And for some of you that are sitting there right now, sitting here listening to this, maybe it's true of you. Are you living as though God doesn't really exist except on Sundays? Can you do everything on your own? You know, sometimes I, one of the other lies that we buy into is the idea that um, God will never give us more than we can handle, right? In fact, what God actually says is, is he says, you can handle everything through me. Well, those are two very different sounding statements, right? God will never give you more than you can handle or, hey, listen, you're going to be able to handle everything because of my power, my strength, my abilities, and what I have. And so whatever you face, no matter what it is, you can get through it because of me. Jesus had two other encounters as he was on his way to Jerusalem. To another that was in the crowd that was there, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, why don't you just leave the dead to bury their own dead? But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another one said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said back to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says there's only one thing when it comes to go. That's the kingdom of God. 
and telling people how to get there. And once you say yes, there's no looking back. If there's anything I want you to remember from today's message, it's this idea. You can't ghost the go. You can't ghost the go. Now, some of you know what ghosting is. Some of you may not know what ghosting is. So let me just tell you for a second what ghosting is. You've probably done it to somebody. Ghosting is, is when someone calls you and you don't answer their call because you don't want to talk to them. Ghosting is when somebody texts you and you don't respond back to them because you don't want to answer their call or whatever it is. That's ghosting. And if you've ever said to Jesus, Jesus, yes, I want to follow you. I want salvation. But listen, I refuse to go. I'm just going to ghost on that whenever it comes to that sort of idea. Then you probably should have a reevaluation of your relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't think you can lose your salvation. But I think this, if you refuse to follow an answer when Jesus calls, then you're probably not his. John records Jesus saying this in John chapter 10. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This is Jesus talking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then check out the end of this. It says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. It doesn't say they ghost me. It doesn't say they ignore me. It says they hear me, and they follow me. And those who do that, incredible promise I give them eternal life so go when we talk about it what does it mean right it's one of the three things that we say our church is about we say that we think the church exists to do three things to gather to grow and to go so when we say go what does it mean well it's not just giving your money to missions that's good it's good. We couldn't do things without resources to be able to do that, and, and that's, a, that's a part of it. But if that's all that your engagement is with the Great Commission, then to be honest, you've missed it and you've probably failed it. It's not just discipling people as you're going about your daily life. Again, that's good, but if that's all that your engagement with Go is, then you are missing it. Jesus says to go, and he demonstrated that as you that you go, and then as you are going. And so here's what we mean when we say go. We think you need to pick a pick a people or a place. You need to pick something. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where he picked. Were there other places he could have gone? Sure. In fact, the Bible tells us right after Jesus says that he set his eyes to go to Jerusalem, that he walked into the area of Samaria and he was rejected by them because they knew that he already had his eyes set on Jerusalem. I know we miss that sometimes that Jesus got rejected before he got to the cross. 
We think about that rejection moment on the cross, but as he turned for the purpose of the mission and the message, there were people that said, you know what? This is no longer for me. And Jesus said, that's okay, you're right, because I've picked the people that I'm after right now. And so when we say go, we're talking about picking a people group, praying for them, and to begin to pursue them. In other words, we believe that go is something that is intentional, it's not accidental. Right? But here's what's great, is that when we are intentional, we also get the unintentional. Because as Jesus was going, as he was living, sent to the place that he was supposed to be going, God sent people to him. They were byproduct of the fact that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so the question that I have for you today is this, not whether or not God has called you to go, because he has. It's not even whether or not you're going to ghost the go, because I think most of you are going, oh, I think that's a pretty big deal he's talking about. The question that I have for you is, who are you picking? Who is your one person? Who is your people group? Who is it that you are going to go to? Who is it that you are going to consistently and constantly be praying for and begging God to give you an opportunity to share the good news of the kingdom of God with them and about how it is that they can get in? Who? Who is it? Is it your neighbor? Sports team? And then, once you've picked it, who's going to help you? Who's going to help you through it? Who's going to help keep you accountable as you go to this person or these people? And as you pray for them? Jesus said, don't ghost the go. Called you to it. Answer the call. Let's pray. God, five years ago, you used the idea of not having been called to be comfortable, but in accepting a call to be changed, to totally change my life. God, you sent my family, you sent Caleb, and along the way you've sent a lot of other leaders for the purpose of going here in Australia. And God, you've laid on my heart that we should be a people that are about going, not about coming. We don't come to church go into a lost world. Jesus, would you wreck us today? Because that's dangerous. 
you get a hold of our hearts in such a massive way that we just can't let go and just can't be let go of. We understand that this is what you've asked of us. This is what you've commanded of us. And that we're really yours. Asking the question what that looks like in my life. God, I know that it'll be different in everybody's life that's here. But I pray this week that you would help them to go. Just to begin to take steps. God, maybe the first step is, is that they just need to pray and ask you, God, who is it that I should be taking? Who is it that you want me to pursue? The same way that you left 99 other sheep behind to pursue the one. God, who is the one that you want me to be pursuing? God, for some, they already know the one. Maybe they need to take the next step. Say, God, how do I intentionally pursue them with your message of love? What ways can I demonstrate to them? What ways can I open up conversations with them? God, for some, all the relationship is built. They've done all of that. They've picked the person. They've been pursuing them. But now... Now, God, it's, it's just time to share. I pray for courage. For love, especially this time of the year that we talk about, do not be afraid. This is the message that the angels gave. God, I pray that we would not be afraid. There's nothing to fear. It's so good to know that you're the one does all the work. We just have to show up. Help us to take those next steps. So we can help us to be a people.